Turn with me to the little epistle by the name of Jude. Last book of your New Testament is the book of Revelation. The book before that is that little book of Jude, 24 verses. We've been studying it together for uh, five weeks. Next week will be our final week, sixth week, and then we'll jump into our uh, fall series called the Solas, the five solas, as we celebrate the Reformation, 500 years since Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses in the Germany castle, Wittenberg, 1517, October 31st, actually. So we're going to be looking at the solas next. So turn with me to Jude. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 23. We like to do books of the Bible, expository preaching, keeping things in context and bringing relevance to it. It's our regular diet. And I want to read for you, Jude. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't have one, it's yours, uh, our gift to you. you. Go to the back of the book, Revelation, one book before that, and we're in Jude. Hear the word of the Lord, starting at verse 17 through verse 23. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers, following in their own godly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourself up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt. Verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So kids, you're dismissed for children's thirst. <coughs> And we're in Jude together. Let's get a running start. Let me give you a little introduction. About five minutes so you can we're all on the same page together. Jude, as we know, is the brother of James. He tells us in verse 1. He's also the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mary and Joseph had other children after Jesus was born. She was a virgin till his birth. And then, like a good wife, had other kids. Wanting to write a letter to this church or churches, Jude wanted to write and, and share with them the common salvation, wanted to encourage them in their salvation as we read in verse 1 and 2, but got word that there has been some people who have infiltrated the church teaching things that were antithetical to the gospel. So he scratched his first idea of writing to celebrate their salvation, their common salvation, and he was compelled to write to them instead a warning to the church. He begins the epistle reminding them, of, <clears throat> reminding them of the work of God's grace. It's always good to begin with the gospel. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that it is of first importance. And he tells us in Jude chapter 1 that God is the one who calls, God is the one who loves, God is the one who keeps us by his grace. And after his first importance sharing the gospel, he shares with them a fervent prayer in verse 2. That they will have mercy, peace, and love in abundance. If you're going to fight heretics on all sides, you want mercy, peace, and love in abundance. And after he proclaims the gospel, after he shares this fervent prayer, he gives us the purpose in verse 3. He said that we are to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. To contend, to, to vigorously uh, uh, stand up. And, and struggle against false teachers by standing on the faith. It's not a verb, it's the noun. It is the body of truth that's been given to us by 
Jesus laid down to his apostles, and now we have according to the scripture. False teachers worm their way into some sort of leadership position in these church or possibly churches and some sort of teaching role in perverting the grace of God into a license to sin. They would answer Paul's question in Romans 6, should we sin that grace may abound? They would say yes. Paul, of course, says no. Today we have teachers who refuse to deal with sin. They pervert the grace of God by saying that we don't need to repent of sin. We don't need to obey Christ. It's not necessary once you become a Christian. The gospel is simply we are loved and accepted and therefore we obey. Religion is we obey and therefore we're loved and accepted is a big difference between the two. The gospel says that Christ has done all the work for us. And as we receive him by faith and believe on him, he forgives us, loves and receives us by the work on which he has already done. And out of a motive of love, we respond in obedience. These folks were just like, hey, you've been forgiven, go do what you want. After he points out the first importance of the gospel, the fervent prayer and the purpose of the letter, he tells us in verses 5 through 7 that there's some Old Testament stories that we are to be reminded of. In fact, he tells us three stories. One has to do with the Jews, God's chosen people. Some have to do with the angels and another has to do with the Gentiles. And all three of these groups in verses 5 through 7 come to the final end of judgment. The final and decisive end is their doom. Then he goes on with just a blistering attack, verses 8 and following, pointing out the characteristics of these false teachers. As I was talking with Pastor Ricky this morning and just going through the list of all the things he calls them, it's like, man, tell us what's really on your mind, Jude. Like, he doesn't hold back at all. They defile the flesh. They disobey God. They're disrespectful. They don't think in moral categories. They live in their emotional impulses like unreasoning animals. They creep in unnoticed. They're hidden reefs. They're, they're rocks under the water looking for, for that boat to come in and just get busted into pieces. They're clouds without water, trees without fruit. Jude says in verse 13 there, the gloom of their utter darkness has been reserved for them forever. Pastor Ricky did a great job finishing what Jude said about their character last week. They're ungodly. They have no reverence for God, no honor for God. They're grumblers. They're malcontents. They follow their own sinful desires in their habitual pursuit of lust and greed. They're loudmouth boasters. They, they show favoritism to gain advantage over people. Bottom line, they were selfish, fleshly, feeding and caring only for themselves. You would think that they would be spotted really easy when they come walking in the church. But Jude says no. Jude says they've been eating and enjoying your love feasts. They're among you. They're the ones who are hosting Christian events. They're the ones that are blogging under Christian banners. They're teaching in some of the seminaries. Brings us to our text this morning. How are we supposed to respond? How are we supposed to respond to this falsehood? And Jude now turns his attention to three things that we can do that we need to do to respond to false teaching, heresy, heretical teaching that infiltrates the church. Three things. One, remember. Remember his words. Remember the words of Jesus. Remember the words of his apostles. We need to remember his words. We need to remain in his love. Remaining in his love. And thirdly, rescuing in his mercy. 
He gives us all three of those things. So first thing he does is he tells us that you must remember. So he gives this character blitz of all these false teachers, and now he says, you, and I'm talking to you, I just showed you them, and now I'm talking to you, beloved. That, that, that word comes from the Greek word agape. It's a term of endearment. If you have an NIV, it says, dear friends, not strong enough. This is his loving, the special, uh, the special uh, uh, particular love of God, the beloved, those in love by, with God. He says, I want to give you the how-to. I want to tell you about the truth on how to contend for the gospel, how to protect the flock. How are you to care and watch over yourselves? And the first thing he tells us is to remember. And in Scripture, remember doesn't all just mean to recall. It is that, but it's more than that. When we gather together for the Lord's Supper, it's not just remembering. It is a special invitation where God extends his grace to us as we grow in strength and we grow in faith and trust in Christ as we gather together around the Lord's Supper. It's not just a remembrance. It is a call to come and to eat and drink and to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Same thing with here. He says, listen, I want you to remember, and not just an intellectual assent, it is a remembering that changes the heart. It's a, remember that press, it's a remembering that presses in the truth. It, it shapes how you think and how you preserve and how you perceive things. That's what remembering means in Scripture. Forgetting the teaching of Christ, forgetting the warnings of God in Scripture is a major cause of spiritual weakness. He said in verse 5, look at me in verse 5, we want, I want to remind you. I want to remind you about this inevitable judgment to come against those who reject the the authority and the word of Christ. It's not just simply to remember, but he he hoped that they don't go down that road. Don't you remember what happened? Don't Don't you know what's going to take place? So remember. Let it change your thinking. Let it change your behavior. What are they to remember? Look what it says. What was told by the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. What was communicated to them through Jesus teaching his apostles. I believe the word apostle there is capital A. It's the 12 that he had called to himself. We know Judas hung himself. Maybe the 12th one was the apostle Paul, which I believe it was. But those 12 who've been given the responsibility and the authority straight from Jesus to go into the world proclaiming the good news of Christ. It's a special authority. That's why I say capital A. The word apostolos is the word apostle. There's capital A and there's little a's. Little a's, we would say they're like church planters. You know, people who are sent. That's what apostolo means, to, to be sent. And anybody who thinks there's a capital A and they have authority over your life like Paul does, run. That's my, that's my uh, advice to you, run. So here, though, Judah's saying we had the apostolic authority. We have those who've been taught directly by Jesus and they are telling us, they are proclaiming to us, those official twelves, those who have their names written on a stone on the wall in Jerusalem, Revelation 21, those who that are the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2, they, they carried on the mission of Jesus in his authority, under his authority. They have taught us, they have showed us that people are going to creep in the church. It should be no surprise. In fact, in Matthew 24, Jesus says that the false Christ and the false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, to lead you astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, Jesus says. He said in Matthew 7, watch out for the false prophets. They're going to come and they're going to look like sheep. They're going to have sheep clothing on, but inwardly they are, rev- uh, they, they are just wolves. 
Peter himself taught in 2 Peter, which is a close connection with Jude, as we mentioned before. He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, beloved, same, same Greek word. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. I'm reminding you that you should remember the prediction of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this first of all, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. Like, it's going to happen. When Paul gathered together the elders, the Ephesian elders, he's in Miletus and he gathers them together in Acts chapter 20. It's a beautiful scene. Paul is gathering all the elders together and this is what he tells the elders. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves. Watch out for yourselves and watch out for the flock of God which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Care for the church. Care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. Fierce wolves will come in among you. They're in your love feast, Jude says. They will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Jesus said it. Paul said it. Peter said it. We can go to 1 Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 3. The New Testament is loaded, abounding with warning against false prophets. And Jude is saying, remember the words, beloved. Remember what Jesus taught and the apostles learned and now are telling you as well. Well, why? So it doesn't take us by surprise. It's amazing to me. I want to be careful. It's amazing to me Sometimes, how people just accept everything because it's Christian. Any teaching and not weigh it with orthodoxy and not look into whether or not the teaching is of God or not or is scripture or not, is of orthodoxy or not. It's been said to be forewarned is to be forearmed. If we're gonna contend for the gospel, we should not be surprised of false teachers trying to infiltrate the church. But also I think it's a history lesson. I think Jude is giving us this vast amount of history, a lesson, because he doesn't want us to repeat the past. Look, this has happened in the past. You've seen this before. Be careful, don't repeat the past. At the uh, Dachau concentration camp in, in Munich, in Germany, or near Germany, Munich, is a museum containing some relics as well as grim photos depicting conditions during the horrific years of World War II right in Germany. And as you visit that place, you pass by a sign. As you leave, there's a, there's a sign right next to the door. You know what it reads? It reads this. Those who do not learn from history are condemned to repeat its mistakes. I think Jude would agree. What were the apostles saying? Same thing with Peter said. Look at verse 18. In the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Family, in the last days or in the last times, if you read that in the New Testament, I want you to know that it's the time in which Jesus came, ministered, died, rose from the dead, and his return. That's the entire last days. So don't let anybody tell you that, you know, I, I, I assume there's a last days to the last days, but we are in the last days. Since the resurrection of Jesus, until the coming back of Jesus, we are in the last days. God made it very clear through the Hebrews 
writer of Hebrews who said, In the last days God has spoken to us by His Son. And Jude now gives us, tells us, there are four characteristics, if you, four characteristics of these heretics. He's not done. He, he's already given us so much, but he wants to give us four more. Two from the past and two from the present. Look with me at this verse together. Jude, verse 18. In the last time, this is what the apostles were saying, there will be, I'm already, I'm telling you in the past, there will be, coming in the future, scoffers. There'll be scoffers. Now, now the interesting word, it, it means to mock. Peter used it in 2 Peter, talking about how people scoffed at the return of Jesus. They're saying like, you know what? He, he said he's coming back. He's not coming back. And they mock that he's coming and returning. And Peter's like, listen, just because he's patient with you doesn't mean he's not coming. Here, people in the church were, were scoffing at God. They were scoffing at things that they should not be scoffing at. Because that's what scoffing means. It means to, to treat lightly the things that are serious. It's to treat lightly the things that are serious. The gospel is serious. Life and death. They play games with what they should not be playing games with. They scoff and they ridicule at what they should not be. Pastor and, and, and theologian Dr. Mark Dever of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington said this, and I, and I wrote it down immediately. I think this is such a good quote. He said this, Great differences over little matters, great differences over little matters don't matter. Little differences over great matters do. Okay? Great differences over little matters don't matter. Little differences over great matters do. You could be, you, you could have just enough truth and then go so far out that what's most important, you are so far gone that even though it may seem like a little matter, it has great implications. That's what we're dealing with in this church. False teachers were teaching things that were heretical. They were perverting the grace of God. They were denying the ethical implications of the gospel. Judas saying they're laughing at and sneering at the holiness of God. They are joking about the righteous character of God. They have no reverence for God whatsoever. They are scoffers. They relied on dreams, the defiling of the flesh, the rejecting authority, and even blaspheming angels, as we saw. They were scoffers. And now look what else it says. They were perverted sensuality. They're following their own ungodly passions. Mocking God's law and moral precepts, these men walk according to their own ungodly passion. How many times does Jude have to use the word ungodly <laughs> to get to what he's trying to tell us? Five times if you're counting. These false teachers are so intent on satisfying their selfish and fleshly desires that they have no place for God. He already mentioned in verse 16, if you look, that, that these are following their own sinful desires. And now he puts together the word ungodly, which is irreverent, and that same verse, that same uh, uh, word in verse 18, sinful desires, epithumia, he puts them together. So he's saying they have no reverence for God and they're lustful in their desires. They're ungodly, irreverent lusters. They serve another God. Lust is Lord, not Jesus. It's idolatry. And false teachers are scoffers. They're driven by selfish sensuality. And look what they do. They cause schism, divisions. Verse 19. It is these who are causing divisions. 
the enemy loves to come in and tear things up. The enemy's not about building stuff up. They're just following the father of lies. They're just doing what their father teaches them to do, and that is to cause divisions in the church. They lack respect for their leadership. They mock moral conviction. They ridicule orthodoxy. And they want to demolish what has taken a lifetime. They want to kill it in a day, if they could. Years ago, we studied 1 Corinthians together. Um, I don't know. It's been a couple of years. And everyone, you know, if you've ever read the book of 1 Corinthians, it's, it's a messed up church, man. I mean, there's sexual immorality. There are all kinds of problems in that church. There's drunkenness at the Lord's Supper. They're abusing spiritual gifts. And a whole host of other issues it gets into the book. But what is the first thing that Paul deals with in the church with all the problems in that church? It's divisions. It's divisions. If Satan come in and divide the church, he's conquered. Divide and conquer, as they say. Let me, let me say this about division too, because sometimes truth does divide. Sometimes the truth does divide. Division is not caused by those seeking to be faithful to the scripture, to historic orthodoxy, biblical doctrine, the, the stuff that's been given by Jesus to his apostles. Those people who want to cause divisions want to come in with their own puffed up made man beliefs and doctrine and, and infiltrate the church. A lot of times they're charming, they, they appear to be open-minded, they seek to liberate us from, you know, from those narrow-minded, Bible-believing cavemen and women who trust and hold to God's word, as I do. They have their own ways. Those who stand on the truth of God's word are not divisive, it is those who depart from the orthodoxy of God's word that wants to bring divisions in the church. And that's the point that Jude is trying to make. He says over and over, they reject authority. They're coming in with their dreams. Ricky pointed out last week, Pastor Ricky, in verse 16, they attach themselves to the rich. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. It's been my experience that those who want to divide and, and teach false teachings in the church want to be in authority. They love being in authority. They just hate being under authority. And the fourth and final mark, look what he says, they are worldly people, verse 19. Devoid of the spirit, they are spiritless. That last characteristics, I mean, of all the things that Jude has said about these heretics, about these false teachers, about these apostates, this one is most telling and most disastrous. They're unregenerated. They do not have the Holy Spirit. They are worldly, or as Paul put it, they are of the natural. Same word he used in 1 Corinthians 2. The natural person, same Greek word, as worldly people here in our text, do not accept the things of the Spirit. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They're they're, they're spiritually unable to understand the things of God because the Spirit of God does not reside in them. Romans 8 says anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Jude's accusations against these apostates are nothing more than earthly people are not governed by the Spirit. They are not disciples of Christ. They say they know Him, but they don't. They boast of the Spirit, but their lives show otherwise. They're frauds, spiritual frauds, religious shams. Titus 1, Paul says, they know, excuse me, they they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. And within a Christian context, to say someone, you are devoid of the Spirit, you, you are a worldly person without the Spirit of God, in a Christian context, can't get any more worse than that. That's what the problem is. That's why they scoff. That's why they're driven by sensuality. That's why they're schisms. And that's why they're spiritless. 
because they're spiritless. But you, he says, verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourself up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. In verse 20, if, if you write in your Bible, that, that, that's cool, I do. The, the, the verse 21 where it says, keep yourselves in the love of God. In, the, in, in verse 20 and 21, that is the only imperative. In other words, that is the only command. Keep yourselves in the love of God. That's the command. All the other verses around it are verbs. They're participles. They are explaining the how-to how to keep yourself in the love of God. Does that make sense? So there's three participles teaching us, showing us how to stay in the love of God, the command to be in the love of God. And they are build yourself up, pray in the spirit, and wait eagerly. Those are the three things. So what does it mean to build yourself up in the most holy faith? To build yourself up, the word build here has to do with building something that's already foundation. There's a foundation and you're coming along and you're framing it. And what is, the, what is the foundation here? Your most holy faith. Believers are to build on the faith's foundation in order to preserve themselves in God's love. And, and let me start by giving everyone a shot in the head spiritually to recalibrate your brain. Because when you read that, and I read that in our Western individualistic culture, we read that and I think, all right, I need to build myself up. That's not what Jude is saying. Jude is saying, build yourself up, but not by yourself. It is a corporate activity. Build yourselves up is plural. It denotes community. There's no solo spiritual journey. It's not a solo spiritual journey. It's one where we come together as God's people in in common love and concern for one another. You don't just sit around and build yourself up. No matter what the commercial tells you when you put the belt on and you go to sleep and you wake up and you're 40 pounds lighter. You don't know how it happened. You didn't do anything, you just went to sleep. Just put this belt on, sit around the house, do nothing, keep eating, and you will drop the weight. It doesn't work. Just like we can't just sit around and go, okay, I'm just gonna be built up. The building up ourselves does not happen by itself. It's through the most holy faith because God is the most holy God and he has given us the foundation of the, of the teaching of the apostles and the gospel and the word of God that helps Build us up, verse three. Once for all, delivered to the saints. It requires the studying of the apostolic teaching when we gather together. The Christian life is to be built upon the foundation of the authoritative and sufficiency of the scriptures. Jude says, look, you want to resist false teaching? Then be devoted to doctrine. The first sign of a Christian is in danger and falling into that trap is when he cuts himself off from the body of Christ. If you stay at home and you think, you know what, I'll just watch it on TV, I'll just listen when I get there, and you're not involved in people's lives, you're deceived. God did not create us that way. God created us to be in relationships. That's the way God designed the church, to gather together as a family, regenerated believers under the headship and lordship of Christ and the supremacy, or the authority, I should say, of Scripture. We gather together under qualified biblical leadership. We gather regularly for preaching and teaching and worship. We observe the biblical ordinance of baptism and communion. We give our finances and and time and ability. We're unified in the spirit, discipline for holiness, and then we scatter into the world as missionaries for the glory of God and for the joy of people. Peter says back in chapter two, we're, we're bricks upon brick. 
we're, it, we're, it's not about you alone. It's about us collectively. So it's not only corporate, but it's continual. I just want to point out, we're going to move on. This verb is a continuous sense. So in other words, continually building yourselves up, continually meeting together. It's lifelong. Keep on building. It's continual. It's corporate. Second, what do we do? We pray in the Spirit. Prayer is a means of grace and under guidance, excuse me, under God's guidance and influence according to his word. And with faith and fervency and consistency, we can preserve through prayer to stay away from and be able to discern false teaching. Now there are some who, and, and, and I love you brothers, if you hear brothers and sisters come from more of a charismatic background, when you see pray in the spirit, you think right away speaking in tongues. Glossalia, okay, the speaking in tongues. That's not what Jude is saying. Look at the context. Jude is contrasting false teachers who are devoid of the Spirit that don't have the Spirit to those who can pray in the Spirit because the very presence of God resides in them, guiding them, leading them, convicting them, even praying for them, Romans 8. Praying in the Spirit means we'll pray that God's will would be done. We will know His will. We will stay close to God. We will pour out our heart upon Him. We are dependent upon Him and we experience His love as we commune with Him. Ephesians 6, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Warren Worsby, uh, I like Warren Worsby. He's got some usual insight and practical teaching. He writes this, according for this verse, he writes this. He says, the word of God and prayer go together in spiritual growth. The word of God and prayer go together in spiritual growth. If all we do is read and study the Bible, we will have a great deal of light, but not much power. However, if we concentrate on prayer and ignore the Bible, we may be guilty of zeal without knowledge. We read the Bible or we read the word to grow in faith. Then we use that faith to ask God for what we need and what his word tells us as we may have. End quote. Okay? I'm not denying the reality of, of, if you have the gift of speaking in tongues, cool. If you, if you enjoy the prayer language of speaking in tongues, I believe that for the New Testament. I believe that for today. I'm just saying that's not what Jude is saying in this context. He's talking about believers being led by the Holy Spirit, being, and he's exhorting us to, to pray in the Spirit because they don't have the Spirit. We have the Spirit. As we gather together, we're praying and we're seeking, we're contending spiritually with those who we're fighting against. That's what he's saying. So we're to remain in God's love by what? Continuing to grow in the understanding of the gospel, studying his word, teaching that's been handed down by the apostles to us in his word. We grow by praying. We grow by, by seeking God, being led by the spirit, dependent on God in prayer. And lastly, look what it says, waiting. Verse 21. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. You know, it's been said that Christians are so sometimes so earthly excuse me so heavenly minded they're no earthly good they're so heavenly minded and no earthly good but sometimes you know what we're not heavenly minded enough that we're not looking forward and waiting on that day anticipating that day hoping in that day in which Christ will return and we will receive the mercy in completion when he consummates the end and we receive the eternal kingdom Michael Green said this in his commentary. If we don't look forward to the hope, he says this. Christianity becomes a mere religious adjunct to the social services, end quote. In other words, whatever is available at the moment, get what you can get, and all that you get, you get now, and that's all there is. 
It's amazing how often, if you read the New Testament, the eschatology, the, the reality of the return of Christ promotes and, 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 and drives us to live a godly life. Jesus says, while the apostates wait their final judgment, it is assured, it is complete, their utter destruction is waiting for them, we are to wait, what? For the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes. On that judgment day, we need mercy. Mercy is compassion. Mercy is giving to those who are in need. And brothers and sisters, we're in need of the mercy of God on the day of judgment. We are in need of the mercy of God in the day of judgment. Paul, laying out the reality of our, of our sinfulness in Ephesians 4, says we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. We lived in the passion of our flesh, just like these apostates. And we were by nature children of wrath, but God, love it, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he has loved us, while we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. By grace you've been saved. And God's mercy is extended to those who not only receive it now, but await its final consummation. That's what he says. That's what he says. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. So another way of keeping ourselves in the love of God is, is, is to keep our eyes fixed upon heaven, trusting, waiting, and hoping in the coming of Christ that someday he will come, someday he will show us the mercy in completion, and we will be given the promise of eternal life. Well, somebody might ask, and you should. It says in verse one, if you look at Jude, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, that's God keeping us for Jesus Christ. It says in verse 24, and we'll get there next week, if you look there, now to him who's able to keep you, Well, why then are we commanded? Why is the command, keep yourself in the love of God? If verse one says we are kept in Christ, and verse 24 says he is able to keep us. In the New Testament, this is, jot this down. The imperatives, the commands of ethical action is rooted within the indicative of God's declaration. In other words, he declares us forgiven have mercy and love and grace be upon us. And therefore, the command to walk in that is always rooted in the indicative. It is, some people get it backwards. They, they try to receive the, the indicative. They try to receive the forgiveness that God has declared, the mercy and the grace. They try to receive that by the imperatives, by the commands. It's the other way around. The command, the imperative is rooted in the indicative So yes, believers are kept by Jesus Christ. God is the one, verse 24, able to keep you from falling. Those who trust in Christ remain in the faith because of the preserving work of God the Father. Nevertheless, family, the promise that God will keep his own does not nullify the responsibility of believers to preserve in the faith and therefore remain in his love. God keeps us and yet believers must keep themselves in God's love. And Jude is showing us what the Bible is clear. Man's responsible and God is sovereign. The sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man. If you don't have a category in your brain of those two things, a lot of the Bible won't make sense. On the one hand, we are to avoid apostasy by the grace of God. On the other hand, the grace of God does not cancel the need for believers to exert all their energy to remain in God's love. Philippians chapter 2. 
Therefore, my beloved, Paul writes, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We're not talking about working in our salvation. That's by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work of his good pleasure. Recalls Jesus' word in John 15, as the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. Really? Yeah, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. What is our responsibility? How are we to keep ourselves in the love of God? Just what we said. Build yourself up in the faith. Study. Read the scriptures. Join a community group. Be here on Sunday morning to gather with the saints and submit to the preaching of God's word. Pray. Pray on your own. Pray with your spouse. Pray with your children. Pray with your friends. Pray with your co-workers, schoolmates, neighbors. Pray in your community groups. And always look to our guaranteed future hope. The hope of the gospel is not like my hope that the Yankees beat Houston. That may not happen. It might happen. We'll see. As I said, the possibilities are abound. Not for the Mets or the Red Sox, they're home watching it. But the Yankees have hope. The day will come when God will judge the living and the dead. And I, who deserve punishment and eternal torment, will escape the wrath of God because of the substitutionary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we never lose sight of that. May we never lose sight of that truth. May we never lose sight and may it always bring us into a deeper love and gratitude for God. Family of God, may our hearts and eyes be fixed heavenward for a rider on a white horse whose name is Faithful and True whose eyes are like a flame of fire on his head are many crowns. Let's keep looking to the one whose robe is dipped in blood and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He will return and by mercy and grace we will receive our inheritance. Let's stay in the word. Let's stay in prayer. Let's look to his coming. In the meantime, there are those who are casualties. We need to rescue them in mercy. Verse 22, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Something very important here. Jude's talking to brothers and sisters. Jude's talking to those who have the spirit who have been caught up with the false teaching. He's not talking about how to handle the heretics, but how to contend for the faith and help those who have been, who have come to Listen and be led astray to the casualties of war. And it seems like to me, there's three categories here. The doubters, look what it says, verse 21, uh, verse 22. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others how? Snatch them from the fire. And to others, third category, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. The doubters, those who play with fire, and those who have stained their garments. And just like a good pastor, Jude says, you know what? Not everybody's in the same place at the same time, and not everyone you need to deal with the same way. I've been through this in ministry many times. Number one, deal tenderly 
with those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt, verse 22. Jude calls on those who have received mercy, multiplied to them, verse 2, who are waiting the mercy in Jesus' coming in verse 22. Verse 21. And now with that same mercy that you have been multiplied, that you're waiting for, show others mercy. Be compassionate with those who doubt. How easy it is to kick them to the curb. How easy it is to ignore them and reject them and ridicule them. Are we a pl- are, let me ask you this question, and you don't have to answer it out loud, but are our community groups a place where somebody can come and say, I have doubts. It's okay. It's okay. Have mercy on those who doubt. We've all doubted before. Don't raise your hand because if you don't, you're lying. All of us have doubts, right? All of us have doubts. The kind of ministry for, for those who have mercy on those who doubt is, takes a great deal of love and patience, especially with new believers as they drink the milk of the word of God. We have to deal with them with compassion and conviction, kindness and firmness, mercy and deep concern and encourage them. Patiently wait with them and teach them about Jesus, the sufficiency of the cross, the authority of the word of God. That's why young Timothy got this instruction from Paul. 2 Timothy 2. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Listen, I understand that nothing that is done in faith, that which is done not in faith is sin. I get that. But all of us have been down that road before. And there's a difference between doubting and straight up rebellion. Okay, let me just say this. It's one thing to doubt and be unsure and run to the source. Seek the face of God. Listen to the scriptures. Seek what God has to say. There's another thing to say, I have doubts, but really it's unbelief and you don't want to submit. You want to be your own Savior and Lord. That's not what Peter, excuse me, Jude is talking about. He's talking about those who are really wavering in the truth. He says, come alongside them, love them, care for them, be patient with them, have mercy on them. The second group, verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire. So the first group, you you dealt with it tenderly. The second group here, it looks like we need to deal with them speedily. Because they're headed to the fire. Snatch them. Deliver, save, rescue them from their error. They've gone almost too far, but they haven't jumped all the way in. We need to act quickly. In fact, the word snatch is an interesting Greek word. It means as a father is walking, he sees his young daughter running into the street in a grave danger, and he literally physically grabs her out of danger by force. See, we're not only just to build each other up, we're to care for one another. And I think, I think Jude is writing this, even though I know he's, I, 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 you could hear it in his voice, he's angry at the, the false teachers that would come in and, and, and destroy the flock, but I know he's got a heavy heart too. I, I just know he's got, a, he's got a tear in his eye as he writes this with, with heavy heart. So dear, te- uh, deal with them tenderly, deal with them speedily, and look at this last group, deal with them carefully, look. To others show mercy, right? Well, show compassion again, but this time look with fear. Hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This group has bought into the lies so much so that they're being corrupted by it, both in how they think and live. They're corrupt, they're defiled, they're depraved. 
They're in danger not only of their own selves, but they are in danger to other people as well. Jude says to love them, to show mercy, but be careful because you too can be defiled. Now, no matter how defiled they may be, they are not, thank you, they are not, thank you, they are not, they are not out of the reach of the mercy and grace of God. No matter how defiled you may feel here today, no matter how dirty you may feel today, no matter how stained you may feel here today, God will forgive you of your sins if you ask him. If you repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus, God will wash you from your sins and put a new clothing on you, clothing of his righteousness. The possibility of a full and thorough forgiveness and complete cleansing of change of clothes is possible for no matter who you are. But Jude warns us, be careful. He doesn't mean don't play cards. Don't watch a football game. Don't go dancing. Don't wear jeans to church. This verse doesn't say we should escape people and disengage people because you know what? People may, may sneeze on you and you're going to catch their sin. Sin is of a heart. But what Jude is saying is that, and what the Bible teaches that we are to love people in the culture. We're not to escape culture. We're not to emulate culture. We're to engage Culture for the cause of the gospel. How far do you go? Sin. Don't sin. Don't go to the strip club. Don't smoke the pipe. Don't go and sin and stain yourself. Stay away from that. But that doesn't mean disengage people. It may take wisdom. It may take, uh, you may have to go with somebody else. You may have to go in prayer. You may have to go in wisdom. You may have to meet with, with some of the elders to help you. But it doesn't mean run from people. It just says be careful. Be careful. You can go to the party, but you're not the guy, right, at the end of the night with the lampshade on his head dancing around. That's not you. That doesn't mean you shouldn't go. Don't sin. That's what he's saying. Know yourself. Know your struggles. So we deal with people tenderly. We deal with people speedily. And we deal with people carefully. The late pastor and theologian, J. Sidlow Baxter, born in Australia, lived in um, England. He attended Spurgeon College in London. He said these wise words. He said this, We must love even while we contend against the errors of the apostates. We must love their souls even while we oppose their words and deplore their ways. Sometimes it is a delicacy, a delicately different, difficult. Sometimes it is delicately difficult to keep these separate. But the love of Christ in our hearts will put wisdom in our lips, end quote. That's a great quote. So where has God spoken to you this morning? Are, are you a scoffer? Are you here scoffing? Are you here taking the things that are most important and not making much of it? And maybe God's been speaking to your heart. Maybe today's the day to surrender all. We're going to sing about surrendering all. We're going to sing about the gospel. We're going to sing about the cross. And maybe today's the day you respond to, to the preaching of his word to say, I surrender all. All to you, Lord Jesus. And maybe you're here and you don't know what it means to contend for the faith. You haven't sensed God's love. It's not that God has moved. He has not. It's not that God's love has changed. He has not. But maybe you just haven't made the time for him. And I'm not saying that to earn your salvation. You all know me better than that. But if you want to experience his love, get in his word. Be in prayer. 
Await for his coming. Look for the hope. Eagerly wait the mercy he will show to us with gratitude. Can we respond in worship together today? Let's respond to his word. Father, thank you so much for this such important and relevant passage of scripture. Father, thank you for the kindness you've shown to us. And thank you, Father, that no matter where we are this morning, it is, it is without doubt that we can say, come to Jesus, have your sins forgiven, be washed, be cleansed by the work of Christ, by his perfect life, by his death, burial, and resurrection from the grave, by his ascension and assumed coming king. And Father, we know your word tells us that all those who call upon him shall be saved. So Father, help us to respond now as the band leads us in music, that we may sing to you, and that Father, we will surrender, lay down our, our lives, because you have laid down your life for us. So Father, thank you, and we pray your spirit would drive us and lead us today as we continue to worship in Jesus' name.